everybody. Chris Webster here to talk about one of the latest supporters to the Archaeology Podcast Network, The Motley Fool. Now, I've been investing in the stock market through various applications for a few years now, and everybody who's listening to this can benefit from that sort of investment for the long-term financial planning. And also, I know the hosts of these podcasts can benefit because as archaeologists, like none of us get retirement, <laughs> we all have to kind of fend for ourselves. So investing in the stock market is a good idea, but not everybody can do it. And look, we get it. The market is complicated and confusing, and to many of us, it simply doesn't make sense. In fact, where do you even start? Take all of the guesswork out of it with the Motley Fool Stock Advisor. The Motley Fool has been around for over 25 years and has been spot on in recommending some of the world's most important companies before they hit the big time. I'm talking about Amazon, Tesla, Netflix, Starbucks, all before they exploded in value. With their easy to use and super informative service, Stock Advisor, you could join the ranks before they potentially find the next big thing. After all, their average stock recommendation is up over 400% as of April 10th, 2023. And no need to be intimidated by financial jargon or market complexities. As the name suggests, these guys don't take themselves too seriously. Now, finances, that's a different story. Their friendly and relaxed approach has helped over 700,000 people move closer to financial independence, all while beating the market and having fun. New members can access Stock Advisor for only $89 for their first year, a full $110 off the full list price. Don't sit on the sidelines and think about what could have happened. Visit fool.com slash APN to start your investing journey today. That's $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. So again, check the link in the show notes of this episode. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You have my sword. And you have my bow. And, and my, my trowel. Hello, you're listening to episode 10. We're into double figures. This is so exciting. <laughs> of And My Trowel, where we look at the fantastic side of archaeology and the archaeological side of fantasy. I'm Tilly. And I'm Ash. And this is the second part of our discussion with Alex Fitzpatrick, who I heard tittering in the background because she's now on five <laughs> plus years of her podcast, uh, chatting all about dragons. Are you into four digits now, Alex? Or is it, is it still three? Oh my god. <laughs> Don't want to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll get back to our thing. We're chatting all about dragons. So let's just remind ourselves a little bit of where we were before we had to take shelter. So a dragon had come to our offices and said that we needed to investigate this site. There were lots of burnt areas of the site, some settlement structures that had been burnt down, but there was also a burial of a dragon. The historic records said that the dragon had been kind of hunting the humans, I suppose, or, or yeah, <laughs> being, being mean, I guess, being the typical big old mean dragon. And she wanted us to find out the real story behind it. So before we get sort of too much into the zooarchaeological zone of it, we were chatting a bit already about how the kind of mythology developed, but of course, dragons are also a very big feature of fantasy books. So in the in the fantasy world, shall we say, rather than the real world, where they're, of course, definitely a thing. So I was just curious if either of you had read any books that particularly feature dragons and, and what your favorite one was. I know that I've read quite a few. I think Aragorn was, was one of the ones yeah. that stands out. But I think my favorite one was the Song of, no, not the Song of Ice and Fire, Fire Tears or something. Oh gosh, I'm going to have to do a bit of background research while you guys are chatting and find it out by Cornelia Funk, which is about little clay dragons who Aww. then turn into real dragons at night. And it's so cute. <laughs> So uh, what about you two? What favorite dragon related fantasy have you have you read? Maybe Alex, you can go first. Well, I mean, as far as like actual books, I mentioned in the last episode that the uh, King Killer mm -hmm. Chronicles is one of my favorite fantasy books. They do a really interesting thing. Again, it's very like 
I don't want to say smart because that's a very silly thing to say about anything, but it's, it's, it, it tackles a lot of like tropes in an mm. interesting way. So one of them being dragons where in the lore of the series, they have a creature called Dracus, which are these like really large, like herbivore reptiles that eat trees, but they do breathe fire. And then that's like, oh, that's how the myth of dragons happened because people found this actual animal. So I always found that really interesting that it's like kind of meta in that it like tackles the myth with (laughs) fantasy. Although if if we're just talking about like a a real dragon or real dragon that like I liked as a kid, this really speaks to the kind of nerd I was as a child. So I used to read a lot of like books about mythology. I as mean, a kid. didn't we all? <laughs> <laughs> you certainly did, Tilly. Yeah, definitely. Did. <laughs> so like my, my dad obviously trying to get me engrossed in my Norwegian heritage got me a lot of Norse mm. mythology books, and I had one that was a picture book that had the story of Fafnir mm-hmm. in it. I know that one. So Fafnir was this like greedy guy who kills his father and he like steals a bunch of treasure from a dwarf and he gets so greedy that he either becomes a dragon or a worm, depending on the translation or like version of the story. And eventually he's killed by the folk hero Sigurd, who cooks Fafnir's heart for his brother Regan to eat. And then Sigurd, like he's like cooking it and he like burns himself. He's like, ah, hot. Oh gosh! He like puts his finger in his mouth to like cool it down, and he like gets some of the blood in it, and that blood, of course, obviously logically, gives him the ability to speak to birds. Now that's how he finds out through the birds that Reagan is about to betray him, so he kills him too. But this was in a, a kid's book about <laughs> mythology, and it's really stuck with me because of how violent it was. <laughs> so I think about it a lot. I mean, we already established in last episode that our childhoods were just full of people telling us how awful and violent the world was going to be. So I guess it's just yeah, no different. So it was just a bit on ground. Okay. But that's, no. that's my favorite dragon, Fafnir. <laughs> Fafnir, excellent. Good, good to know. <laughs> what about you, Ash? Well, there's one dragon that really stands out and it's Smaug. Oh, of course. Of yes. course. Of course. But uh, I was also thinking of the, the Temeraire books by Naomi Novik mm-hmm. and it's dragons and history so it's actually based in the Napoleonic Wars cool but there's dragons that is cool yeah that's one of the things I, I remember from it anyway and I was thinking not even not books but films Dragonheart that's like <gasps> one of my favorite films <laughs> like that's great like Sean Connery as a dragon like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what do you want more from life <laughs> I mean, some semi-decent CGI would be okay, but like... It was the 90s. That was was top of the range CGI. But you mentioning those other books just reminded me of another book that I read recently called The Natural History of Dragons, which is actually, Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed it, by Marie Brennan. And it's basically written as if you're like from the perspective of uh, the... Lady Trent, and she is her first voyage off into the distance, and she's accompanying her husband on like an expedition to go and find dragons. But this is the the way the book's written is quite clever because it's sort of set in Victorian times, but then at some point you realise there's dragons in the world, like it's it's just how life is kind of thing. Yeah. But so it's more of like a natural history perspective, biological analysis of dragons and how they function and all this kind of stuff, which I find quite quite interesting. So uh, yeah, one kind of fits, I guess, a bit with what we're going to do today. So <laughs> that's also nice and. Yeah, how this particular concept has developed. So, I mean, Alex, you mentioned already the, the oh, I've forgotten his name already. Fafnir? Fafnir, Fafnir. And sort of those original dragons are then almost kind of 
evil in a way, I guess. And like Smaug as well is sort of the representation of greed, of evil and greed and, and that kind of thing. I mean, has that sort of, is that still a thing in fantasy? Has that changed, would you say? I think you get your territorial dragons, don't you? They always have a territory and they always, mm. I always think they want gold and they're kind of hoarding. And <laughs> but I yeah. think it has been framed because of Smaug. Well, or even like Beowulf, we read Beowulf as yeah. part of the archaeology book club and that that was also at the end, there's the random dragon <laughs> that he goes and yeah, fights. Yeah, right. <laughs> when he's like 80 years old, but anyway. Um, it's uh, it's Beowulf though. Yeah. I think especially if you think about today, there's like interesting things happening with dragons. I think what we've seen over time is that dragons, depictions of dragons at least have become more cohesive. Mm-hmm. I think they're still obviously very different across cultures, but I think there's you can kind of see them take shape. So they go from this like warm thing in some parts and then it's more stereotypically like a thing with wings and stuff. And then I think you also get more sentient depictions of dragons obviously you still even today you still get dragons as like a monster but i think you see more of like dragons as like characters as like Mm -hmm. people Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then i think even and then if you go if you take into the modern time then you have even more interesting depictions of dragons so like i hate to bring up video games but like Mm -hmm. skyrim dragons have their own language and their own culture Mm -hmm. you know so I, i i think there's it's interesting to see them develop into something kind of more hmm. rounded and more interesting. Although, you know, obviously that could have existed before and we just either don't have those stories Written records, left yeah. Which I'm curious yeah. then actually from with your your background of the Norwegian side and the Chinese side, would you, because the, the sort of the Chinese dragon in, yeah, modern kind of tellings i suppose is still and sort of modern cultural different events that take place and everything is such a specific kind of dragon almost like i would never picture the chinese dragon as i would necessarily the sort of european medieval ideal of a dragon if that makes sense like they're still quite different would you say that that's also developed quite a lot in china or is it still quite ingrained in the kind of traditional concept of a dragon yeah i mean i think it's such iconography that i think it's kind of remained its own bespoke mm. thing i think you can because you really can differentiate between like a chinese dragon i think even if you're not chinese mm. or from china you know what that means so i think it's like become its own thing but weirdly enough when i was a kid i always thought that they they kind of look yeah, the same yeah, yeah. <laughs> in my brain i was like yeah i mean chinese dragons don't have wings but i was like they're still more or less <laughs> the same they look more lion-like but to be honest a lot of animals in china, chinese depictions look oh, really? like lions oh, okay. for yeah, some reason yeah, yeah, so yeah, I think about it. <laughs> Which, is the lion a big symbol in China as well? Uh, sometimes. I mean, you have the big lion dances, like the big thing that people okay. dress up as and they mm-hmm. for Chinese New Year. I don't know. We got we got lots we got lots of animals over there. I speak like I'm from I'm not from China. I'm no, from, but you have the, the Chinese Americans. Put it this way, you have more understanding of the cultural background to it than than I do. <laughs> so I, I uh, would much prefer you to talk about it than uh, me try to talk about it. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> so yeah, maybe we can chat a little bit more about how we can use archaeology in fantasy and, and vice versa. So with the investigation of fantasy elements, do you think we can use that in archaeology? For example, dragons. <laughs> yeah, for example, dragons. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think there's something about always keeping your 
mind open to things not necessarily to the point that you're doing ancient alien stuff yeah obviously. no pseudo archaeology here <laughs> no of course not no pseudo you dragon but <laughs> but i think there's something interesting about thinking about perspective in the past even though logically we would say well it's not a dragon it perhaps it could be that people saw something as a mm. dragon or you know related something to dragon qualities you know stuff like that i think is really interesting i'm one for trying to be as open as possible interpretation mm -hmm. like the thing i always like to talk about when i talk about zooarchaeology and and interpretation in general is like during my masters like i said i did i did a bunch of fish archaeology which was not fun <laughs> a lot of unsurprisingly would you believe it that on a coastal site you have a lot of cod almost like they were fishing yeah. <laughs> you don't know really what that. i was trying to, to find but one thing i did find was a single monk fish jaw mm -hmm. And it was just one. And, you know, they, in my thesis, I wrote, like, eh, you know, they, they are, you know, bottom feeders. You'd have to, they, you'd have to do deep sea fishing to catch these, you know, in comparison to some of the other fish that people were catching around this time. So it could have been an accident. And then I was kind of like, I didn't really write this in my thesis, but part of me was like, maybe someone found it and thought it was cool and kept it. Why yeah, not? completely. Yeah. That, that's the thing. I suppose you could sort of apply without iconography i suppose of dragons and any kind of like animal to their life ways you know if they're keeping stuff if there's stuff on the site that you don't really know why it's there it could <laughs> i hate to say it be part of a ritualistic aspect Ritual. of their life <laughs> <laughs> and it's not even just ritual though i think there's just curiosity mm. and like interests and like you know, that's cool. I'm going to keep it like stuff like that. That's not tangible and hard to prove. But it's something I always think about when it comes to interpretation of like, you know, we really strive for this really rigorous scientific approach to it. And obviously that makes sense. You know, otherwise you could say whatever you want. But part of me is always kind of like, you know, I collect things because they're cool mm -hmm. or they have good vibes. Mm -hmm. You don't find that archaeologically. <laughs> Vibes aren't in the archaeological record. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great, though? It would be great. I, I mean, I could site. tell some vibes. Right. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to recatalog my finds. <laughs> vibes. <laughs> on vibes. Like this one I like, and this one I don't like. Oh, my God. It's the dragons that are coming. The dragons again! Ah! <laughs> stop talking about us <laughs> yeah so we can use we can use fantasy elements in archaeology to kind of maybe look at our interpretations of sites as well but do you think we can use archaeology in fantasy and we can use our you know our different theories and applications of archaeology into a fantasy setting you can and i do it all the time on my other in which case i think before we continue with this discussion all this talking is making me a bit hungry it's been a while since 11 so I think it's time for afternoon tea. Would you agree? I think so. Cool. Okay. Well then, let's uh, unpack the teapot and the scones and we'll be right back. Hey, Archaeology Podcast fans. Anyone that's heard me on a show has likely heard me mention coffee one or probably a thousand times. Coffee, however awesome it is, has some downsides and should be consumed in moderation. That's why we partnered with Laird Superfoods. 
They've got lots of stuff, but their coffee and coffee creamers have been engineered to taste better, provide functional benefits, and don't contain any refined sugars. So are you ready to feel more energized, focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. Use our promo code ARCPODNETFEED at checkout and save 15% on your purchase today. You can also click the link in your show notes. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back, everyone. That was a very delicious afternoon tea. So... Let's go back to this scenario, seeing then as Alex, you're a very experienced hand then at using your archaeological experience to investigate fantasy concepts. How would you deal with this particular scenario based on your experience? So I think, first of all, I would tell someone else, not me, because I don't do this stuff, to look into (laughs) the stratigraphy of the site, specifically like where burning falls into the overall timeline of the site. Hmm. I don't know anything about stratigraphy. I don't understand it. What's up? (laughs) What's a Harris matrix? I don't know. Oh, I love a bit of a Harris matrix. Ooh, you are cursed. You are a cursed individual. <laughs> well, maybe then, Ashley, just quickly, seeing as you're no. an experienced field archaeologist, <laughs> at least stratigraphy. Can you just give a very quick definition of stratigraphy? Yes. So stratigraphy is actually a geological concept, but over time, essentially sediment, soil and debris just accumulates and it just puts layer on layer on top of each other. And these are referred to as stratigraphy. So when you cut into a section of, say, a trench, you'll see the layers of soil and the different bands. And that gives you different time periods, really. The lowest ones, usually the latter. It depends if there's cuts and things inside of it as well. And, you know, human activity. But yeah. It's kind of a supposition of rock and sediment. Mm -hmm. So basically what you're saying, Alex, is we should be able to see if the death of the dragon was before or after the settlement got burnt or during or something like that. Yeah, because, you know, the ash would accumulate or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's actually a fun <laughs> when you do carbon dating, right? There's a great example of this, and I learned at uni that during a fire, it was a Bronze Age fire, there was a roundhouse, and the roundhouse fell on top of a cow and killed the cow <gasps> oh. during the fire. So you had the layers of fire, obviously the ash, and then you had the cow, and then you had the debris of the house on top, and that's stratigraphy, that's your three layers. And obviously, you'd have like, you know, your subsoil and stuff as well. But the cow was able to give them an exact date because a time of death essentially would give you you know when your carbon stops and your half-life begins that's carbon dating and so it gives them an exact time period of when that house burnt down that's very convenient yes (laughs) good old cow (laughs) yes who put that cow there and then started the fire (laughs) just wanted to remember i'm just gonna need this (laughs) yeah 
Okay. Yeah, so that was weirdly the first thing I thought of with this situation. And then, of course, with burning, you could also do microanalysis of, like, any burnt organic remains. So Pat Mm -hmm. Shipman and Rebecca Nicholson have done a lot of work, particularly on um, burnt animal remains and how, if you look at the morphology of it, you can kind of understand, like, the temperature of burning, how the bones were burnt. So obviously for other sites, it's a little bit more of like, you know, it could be cooking, it could be accidentally burnt because it's like, you know, just kind of got really close to the fire or whatever. I mean, at this point, we kind of know probably what made the fire, <laughs> mm-hmm. but you never know. We could be, we might want to know what the temperature of the, the flame was. Maybe that's something to do with the biology of dragons. I don't know. Maybe. Or maybe someone set up this dragon to make it look like they'd had been burning down the villages. But actually, if you look at the flame strength or something, it couldn't have been a dragonfly. Because I assume yeah, dragonfly I mean, is quite you know, potent. <laughs> and you'd think a dragon would, wouldn't burn in a fire. Yeah. I'm trying to remember from our scenario whether the dragon... I don't think the dragon was burnt. I thought it was a bit charred. So just me. We could check, though. We yes, there check. we go. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing I would say is that if you looked at the burial, obviously, the burial itself, you have your grave goods, if they exist, mm. looking at whether or not it's a complete body, because it, it could be that it's not a burial, it's a deposit. I don't know oh, how exactly. dragons are, mm-hmm. are considered in this scenario as far as whether they're, you know, considered as sentient beings or, you know, something else could have been a natural deposit or whatever. Mm -hmm. And taphonomic consideration as well. And that would include burning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned like, yeah, deposit versus burial. So are there a lot of examples of burials of animals that have been yeah included with grave goods and that kind of thing i mean that's why that's part of kind of how we've been looking at domestication is you get Mm. these particularly like in the early prehistoric you get these like canine basically dog burials that because of the way that they're buried because they mimic similar burial rites to humans that adds to the evidence of you know this kind of close companionship that we were having with dogs at the time and has added to the because i swear like every every two years we get a new date for dog domestication Mm -hmm. like i wrote something for eons the youtube series about dog domestication i think that was a couple years ago and i think it's already out of date as far as like (laughs) dates Uh, which is great it's amazing that we keep expanding how we understand domestication but it's really annoying when you're publishing on it yeah (laughs) especially if the review process takes like a year or two and then suddenly you're like oh hang on let me redo this 5,000 years behind folks (laughs) like it's it's amazing because I think now I can't remember off the top of my head but it's a couple we're looking at you know I think maybe between 20,000 and 30,000 years ago for domestic dogs. It's really long. Like it's a really long time we've been domesticating dogs. But yeah, it's, that's the kind of thing where differentiating between, uh, you know, a burial or kind of just like a natural uh, deposition is really important because it tells Mm -hmm. you a very different story. And I think that's where it kind of fits in with what we've been talking about with dragons is that culturally they have, very different meanings and very in very different roles in society and culture. So mm-hmm. it could be very different. And yeah. stratigraphically, you'd have a grave cut if it was an actual burial. If it's a deposit, you don't. You have just sediment going over the top of it quite naturally. Right, um, because they wouldn't have dug the hole. It would have just been like Yeah, there. it would just sort of filled mm-hmm. up and kind of drifted. 
mm-hmm. a lot of the time you get wash down hills and things like that so if a, you know like a sheep would have died and it's fallen down a hill or something then you kind of get that sediment building up over time but then if you actually have a, an intentional burial then you're going to have a grave cut Mm-hmm. There you go. Okay. Okay. So we can see it in the context of the site. We can see in the context of how it, well, we don't necessarily know how it died. Is it, is it possible to tell how it died from, from just looking at a, at a burial or is that something a bit more interpretive? You'd have to look at the actual body itself, whether or not it has pathology, how we determine dragon pathology is a completely different conversation, I guess. Because, you know, it could be it could be very obvious. It could not be. I mean, if it's a very old, you know, if you age it, is it at an age where they would typically probably die of old age? You know, if if it's domesticated, are we culling it? Like, I don't. <laughs> what's the mortality profile? You know, <laughs> so there's a lot of different things you could do with it, and I think what where we really need to get at is where it falls on the the sentient or not <laughs> scale, right. which is something me and Simona, my co-host on Archeo Animals, talk about a lot when we talk about these fantasy things and science fiction things. Like, you know, it's weird to say like are we talking about zooarchaeology in this case where do we draw the line with some of these fictional species (laughs) which that's a really interesting point actually because indeed the it was a dragon who came and told us about this site so then i assume we're so indeed would it be have we called the wrong person (laughs) do we not need a zooarchaeologist we need a but then is an animal how does that how how Ooh, that's tricky theological ground we <laughs> we ended up talking about this in a recent i guess well at the time of this recording a recent episode for me i feel like maybe we think about it as zooarchaeology is just non-human species point mm-hmm. blank like that's it and then you know if there are other species sentient species out there doing archaeology then they have their own word for it potentially and then we so, work it out when we start collaborating, I guess. <laughs> so we had an episode with David Ian Howe looking at werewolves and our conclusion was that we need a werewolf archaeologist to look at the werewolves because they will know about the thing. So it's the same, right? In this one, we need, yeah, we yeah, need a I guess. archaeologist, I guess. Yeah, like maybe it's like zooarchaeology is speaking about non-you species. So like anything that's not me, that's not a human. Mm-hmm. But then it's like, maybe are there zooarchaeologists who have a speciality in dragons? I don't know. We like had, we like have derailed many a conversation talking <laughs> about this because I suddenly find it really like an actual like ethical question, even though it doesn't matter in our real lives. They are real, but in like a different world where it's not real, it's not a pressing moral question out of the many other moral and ethical questions regarding archaeology, like far low on the list for sure. I suppose it is it is low, but but it is still an interesting point because maybe in a hundred years archaeologists will be looking back at us and being like, oh my gosh, how could they have differentiated between you know human and animal or like you know why would why were they having osteologists and then zooarchaeologists for every other animal species? That's so you know inethical. <laughs> Just like I guess similarly to how you know the analysis of different. Yeah, very brackets, quotes, whatever, races or whatever was done in great antiquarian anthropological studies, which now we look back at and think that, what, whoa, like, why would they do something like that? Maybe something similar will be done in 100 years to what we're doing. I mean, that's something that I think about and try to expand more about is like a more holistic approach to 
osteology that isn't so anthropocentric, even though obviously we're kind of inherent to that because we are humans. Mm -hmm. So it's a difficult question that I constantly am rattling in my brain, even though, again, I know it's like not as important as some of the other kind of ethical questions that are going on right now. (laughs) But I think it's interesting, you know, I think it's an interesting thing to think through in particular. And, uh, you know, the people like there's zoo archaeologists doing stuff like social zoo archaeology, which is kind of like that approach of trying to remove the focus so much on humans as like the instigator and more about animal instigated relations and interactions so interesting yeah Yeah, we talked about that a little bit last time didn't we with the werewolf stuff how how we could how can we as humans with an anthropocentric view truly represent animals in the archaeological mm. record it's mm. it's really difficult because we don't even see the same way we don't experience the world in the same way so yeah it's a very very interesting question well especially if you have a dragon burial like we do here so <laughs> <laughs> very relevant i would say <laughs> to this particular species so hopefully maybe we would have to to enlist the help of a dragon historian then to assist us with the kind of dragon law and how burial practices might be maintained in that sort of respect we can see it in terms of the site context is there anything else that we can learn using I'm going to keep saying zooarchaeological, but let's say osteological law or anything, methods by looking at, for example, the burial itself. Yeah, I mean, it would depend on, I guess, also learning a bit about burial culture and burial rites in that region. As Mm. far as, you know, are we looking at a dragon cultural burial? Is it a different type of burial? Would that tell us who buried the dragon? If it wasn't another dragon, was it someone else? Mm. What could that mean in that respect as well? If it's someone else burying them and using a different type of burial, right? I mean, this is kind of why I like archaeology. I like how it, you know, especially like osteologies or archaeology, whatever you want to call it, because it's connected to so many different things. Like I said, like the environment, you know, human non-human relations, symbolism, culture, society, you start unpicking it and you can really unravel and you start touching on so many other elements that aren't necessarily just the site you're working on, which I find really interesting. Yeah, no, I like that indeed. And I like that you've uh, touched on some of the more theoretical sides and the kind of ethical sides of it as well. I think that that's a really good point to make in terms of, I guess, any any archaeological method. It's not just the method itself. It's also the the contextual side, like the theoretical context. I will do anything to not think about the practical stuff of archaeology, <laughs> to be completely honest. But it also, yeah, I mean, realistically, like that's the stuff I am interested in is the ethical and kind of theoretical aspects of archaeology as someone who doesn't like to go outside or go dirty. Fair enough. Touch dirt. Don't like it. I mean, I am the same. I must say, I like being in a lab and looking at the objects under the microscope. (laughs) I feel like I'm singled out here. (laughs) This is perfect. We have the perfect team here. (laughs) Ash, you can go out in the rain and the mud and dig the I think I need more than just me (laughs) to do a dragon burial. (laughs) I'd be like, what do I do? (laughs) So, we may need to indeed enlist a couple more people, it sounds like, to help with all these different facets of the burial because it it's not something that's simple. It's not something that just one person can look at. So 
that's something to look forward to in the future. But I would say that this has been a very successful initial discussion of the next path that we can take. I think that that is about it for then this episode of Am My Trowel. Thank you so much, Alex, for helping us out with this particular problem. It was, you know, we went we went back and forth, but I feel like we did get somewhere um, in the end. So it was really great to have you join us. Thank you so much uh, for taking the time to speak to us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. And as always, if there's any suggestions that people have for an episode, maybe you've read a fantasy book, have an archaeological concept you don't understand, there's something that you want to investigate archaeologically like we've done today, do get in contact with us via email or social media. All of the contact info for us and Alex, as well as links to the Archaeo Animals podcasts and other references that we've made and further reading for the show, the points that we've discussed in the show today can be found in the show notes. Tilly, I think that old woman is staring at me. Which old woman? Oh, wait, she's holding out something. Is that her laundry? Ugh, I hate washing. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.